What's up? I'm Amanda Costco, and you're listening to the Electric Runway Podcast, a podcast exploring the intersection of fashion and technology. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm continuing my conversation with Leanne Luce, a blogger, product manager at Google, and the author of a newly published book on artificial intelligence for the fashion industry. In case you missed the first part of this interview, I invite you to listen to episode 100 of the podcast, which is available for free on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. In this conversation, Leanne walks us through how AI is positioned to change many aspects of the fashion industry, from the way buyers make purchasing decisions to the way shoppers like myself discover and consume products and experiences. When we left off, Leanne and I were chatting about the pervasive problem of fit. That is the challenge in the fashion industry to predict an online shopper's correct size. In today's conversation, we touch on AI as a tool for fashion design and creation, as well as the difference between robots and automation. Once again, it's my pleasure to introduce Leanne Luce. You know, we've talked about AI impacting sales as well as impacting solving this problem of fit, I should say. What about artificial creativity in the fashion industry? We've heard a lot of controversy over this idea that an AI could design something that would predict, you know, this is going to be that of the moment dress, like the Versace dress that Jennifer Lopez wore. Like it could predict that something like that was going to come along and just make it in advance. Do you think that that's a possibility? So this is such a fun conversation because I've had this conversation with people who have designed AI systems for generating music, for all kinds of different creative tasks. And I have, a, I have an opinion, but, but everybody has a very strong opinion on this. I think AI is a tool. And especially today, AI is capable of copycats. It's capable of recombining aesthetically different things. But in the end, it doesn't appear to be capable of genuine creativity the way that humans are. In fashion, this is especially interesting because the way fashion moves is that it's unpredictable. And that's part of the joy of it, right? It's constantly it's constantly working against itself in order to reinvent itself. And so that's something that AI isn't really designed to do right now. That said, I've seen imagery created by AI that is really interesting, that like definitely sparks creativity in humans and humans pick that up and they do something else with it but again it's a tool and in terms of fashion design also because I've worked as a fashion designer before any fashion designer will tell you that the image of the dress is 0.01 percent of the job and basically the machine is pushing pixels around it's not designing how the seams go together it's not putting the combinations of materials together it's not like matching pantone swatches it's not pinning darts and fittings it's just it's not doing any of those things so i don't think fashion designers really need to worry just yet <laughs> yeah i mean the question itself supposes that the manufacturing process itself is fairly automated which as you're saying anybody who's worked in the fashion industry knows that it's not yet and it's very, very much still a hands-on industry. That's right. End to end. So in chapter eight, you talk about generative models. So how closely related do you think this is to computer-generated fashion models? Are we talking about the same thing here? So this is a really funny one. I, I actually don't even think I know what 
people think of these fashion models, like little Michaela is my favorite example. I'm really excited about generative models, but yeah, I think they're pretty unrelated to the computer generated fashion models that we see today. I think there's a lot of talk about AI on their social media pages for little Michaela and her friend Bermuda and the whole gang of them. But I don't really know what AI is being used to generate them. I would be willing to believe there's machine learning behind CGI tooling, but that would probably be it. Yeah, and so we'll back up for a second. We'll talk about just what is a generative model. You have a great example of them in the book using the example of a fashion blogger. Generative models are sort of a new space in the last couple of years, though new is a relative term. Basically, the idea there is that you're training a neural network, or in the example I give, it's generative adversarial networks. You're training two networks to work with each other or against each other to generate images, and that's the ultimate goal. And so what you can do there is you can feed this model thousands of images. It learns about them, so to speak, and then it will kind of create images in the likeness of the images that you trained it on. They will be completely unique. They will not be exactly the images that you gave it, but they'll look like them. So in the book, I trained a fashion blogger image, which is actually the cover of the book. And so that's all output by a machine's kind of imagination, if you will. It's funny because as you're explaining to me and as I was reading about this generative model, it made me think about these little Michaela and Bermuda Isbay characters because it seems that they're using the same process that you just described to generate a an influencer online, essentially. And yes, they use the language of cyborgs to talk about themselves on these channels. And it's just basically this idea that they have enough data about what it takes to be an influencer online that they can generate that. And so it reminded me of it, even though you're saying that the concepts are, in fact, different. Yeah, I, I don't know what they're doing in their strategy or if they're using data to drive their strategy, but the images of the model themselves are motion graphics. It's a different sort of technology. There's so much I want to cover here. I feel like I'm moving on so quickly, but there's so much fascinating information within your book here. So, you know, when it comes to data mining, first of all, data mining, how how does that fit in with artificial intelligence? How are those related? What role do you think data mining will play in the future of fashion? Okay, yeah, this is a big one. So one of the big ideas I talk about in the book is using data mining for trend forecasting. There have been several research papers on, I'm not really sure how brands are using this today, but basically the idea is that you can scrape data from social media, from the news, from wherever you'd like to scrape data from, but you can learn about your customers by understanding what they're putting online. That's one way that you can start to identify trends. And is that something that most fashion brands do these days? I think that fashion brands do a lot of research. I think they do a bit more qualitative research than quantitative. So I think in the case of fashion brands, they have a lot of creative people that are reading through different sources to find trends, but they probably don't have a data pipeline that's scraping a bunch of sources, websites, and feeding through algorithms and spitting out data about what they've found. Where do you stand, another big question, on this whole data privacy thing? So if I'm a consumer and different fashion brands or different brands in general are using my data to target things towards me, am I supposed to be okay with that in exchange for the services that a company provides to me, for example? And I'm just asking your personal opinion. 
data privacy is something that I think as a culture we're really just starting to address. I think yeah. a lot of sketchy stuff has happened behind the scenes at various different companies and people are starting to speak out against it mostly because they were unaware. And the bigger issue there is about transparency and letting your users know when you're collecting data about them, which we're seeing an increase of transparency since GDPR and all of these types of things have been set into motion. The fashion supply chain we know is an area that is extremely complicated. Again, there's a lot of variables in the back end. There's a lot of opportunities here because things can really be cleaned up towards a more efficient fashion system. And this is something that the sustainability people in the fashion industry are really all over. What role do you think AI can play or maybe more specifically deep learning in supply chain management? Yeah, so this chapter was an interesting one to write. Sustainability is something I definitely care about, and I've been in the school of thinking before that piece-by-piece manufacturing is the only way to do it. But this is another idea. There have been a few experiments using deep learning to try to understand and predict demand for a product. I can't say that deep learning will be the ultimate solution for this. Actually, last year, Facebook released a forecasting model called Profit that seemed more promising and isn't exactly deep learning. It isn't exactly anything I could describe, but you can read about it in the book and you can read about it on Facebook's website. Basically, the idea there is that the the challenge with deep learning is you basically have a black box and when you have results that are not interpretable by humans, if you don't know why the machine made certain decisions, it's very hard for that information to be useful. And so what Facebook did is they basically added this mechanism where the the analyst or the buyer could be in the loop with the machine and be giving kind of feedback or information that they knew about what was going on in order to keep the predictions more accurate. That seems to have really positive results. So still there's more to come. I think if you're really interested in demand forecasting, checking out that forecasting model of profit from Facebook is probably pretty interesting to you. And there are others. As you were describing it, I immediately thought of the scene from Minority Report when the Sears, those visionaries that can see the future, are floating in the water. And have you seen the movie? No, I haven't. <laughs> so for those who've seen the movie, they know what I'm talking about. But it's just this idea of the machine and the human working together to make these decision. It's, it's so aptly named Profit, as you were saying. We'll definitely take a look further into that because we know that that data could be very valuable for a lot of reasons. So in chapter 11, you made an important distinction that I realized myself I was actually even collapsing these two ideas. And I thought it'd be interesting to share with our listeners. You make a distinction between robots and automation uh, so that our listeners can understand. Can you explain the difference? When I first started working in robotics, which was several careers ago by now, this was a question that I had that I thought was a really stupid question. I kind of assumed the same, that automation and robots were the same, but they really aren't. To give some context, in a sewing factory, there are many tools for automation. You have cutting tables that can be automated, patch pocket setting that can be automated, embroidery, buttonholes, plackets. There are a bunch of machines to do these tasks, and they don't involve as much human hand as they once did. This is automation. Robotics usually has a slightly different goal, which is flexibility. So a robot is in theory able to respond to a changing environment, whereas a pocket setting device simply cannot. It's stationary, it doesn't really respond, it does the same thing every time. And robotics also, to be clear, can have the goal of, of automation. It just usually takes on more complex automation tasks. 
Yeah, but something I think about is, okay, so we've automated all the buttonholes and the cog in the machine, you know, that type of repetitive work. But then now we're trying to automate things like healthcare and emotional attachment. Do you worry about the, the blurred line between our computers and ourselves? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think that the biggest danger is that as we increasingly trust devices, they can influence us more. So I always feel a little nervous about home assistants like um, Alexa. And I found myself saying thank you or please to this device. And then I realized like there's not necessarily a danger to that, but a slippery slope if they start offering me products and I feel guilty saying no. But I think it's great that you at least say thank you and please. I think that's an important other conversation about how do we treat our our devices. And you actually bring up a great point in the book about that is that, you know, they tend to be women, right? Siri and Alexa and even, you know, the Sophie the Robot that you mentioned in the book. It seems that AI has been given a very gendered look and it's also a very sexualized look as you pointed out and uh, very rightly so because we need to be careful of that because it should be everybody shaping the future of what our technology looks like not just having it being shaped in this image that actually leads right into my next question so how do we diversify our vision of AI in the future yeah so this was one of those topics in the book where I I wrote it then I took it out and I was like do I really want to go there but I think that I'm not sure I have the solution immediately. I think it's really important that we do diversify. And basically the, the thing I bring up the most in the book is that if we continue to have these devices have the likeness of a woman, what are we saying? And the way we treat these devices and the way that we expect to interact with them is that they're subservient. They serve us, they're our assistant, whether that be in the movies or in our homes. And do we really wanna say that a female voice is the one that should be subservient? And I think no. It also brings up another kind of question I have, which seems alarmingly obvious, which is one of the first lines of defense that I get back when I bring up this issue is that, well, females are less threatening. And so if we want robotics to make progress and if we want these systems to make progress, then we should use the female voice. But the problem that underlies that kind of assumption is that we're afraid of men. And why is that? Yeah, that's a very good point. I want to wrap this up. I thank you so much for spending so much time talking about your book with me because it hits on so much what we talk about at Electric Runway all the time, what our listeners are interested in. So just a few more questions for you before we wrap it up. What do you envision for the future of AI and the fashion industry? This is such a good question. And I totally, when I was going through your questions, <laughs> left it blank because I was like, what do I envision? I don't know. I, I mean, the thing I'm most excited about is these style assistants. I think that it would be really incredible to, to see that come to life and really that could encompass all of the things I talk about in my book. It could just tie in all of those different technologies. So I look forward to seeing how these technologies, as they mature, they, they also kind of merge into one. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to being able to choose my outfit and go dancing in nightclubs in VR. I think you can probably already do that. But then if you really like the outfit, you can get it digitally made for real life as well. Yeah, I think somebody told me you can get clothes in Fortnite now. I don't know. I'm not. That is very true. And we also had the founder of Second Life on the program not too long ago. And he was telling me that people make full-on careers 
full-time real people make full-time careers, a full-time living in designing hair or accessories or clothing in Second Life still to this day. And I thought that was fascinating. So I'm very fascinated about this future of digital goods and especially because fashion is so much about uh, representation and so much of our lives is now about online representation. I'm very excited about how these areas will merge and I'm certain that AI will be a huge part of that. So once more, Leanne, where can people buy your book? Sure, the book is available on Amazon and on A-Press, the publisher's site. Uh, you can search for the title, Artificial Intelligence for Fashion. And we're gonna put it up on Electric Runway. How can people follow you and stay in touch? Probably the easiest way is you can get all of my social media and contact from my blog, thefashionrobot.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Leanne underscore Luce, which is L-E-A-N-N-E underscore L-U-C-E. Leanne, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. That was part two of my two-part interview with Leanne Luce, a fashion blogger, product manager at Google, and author of the newly published Artificial Intelligence for Fashion, How AI is Revolutionizing the Fashion Industry. Once again, I'm going to share links on electricrunway.com to where you can find the first episode of that conversation, as well as links to where you can purchase a copy of Leanne's book online. I strongly recommend it. So thank you so much to Leanne for taking the time to record. I'm sure we'll be hearing lots more from her as the story of AI is just at the beginning. For more from Electric Runway, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at electric underscore runway. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter where we deliver the latest news and information directly to your inbox, including the latest podcast episodes. So just visit Electric Runway to sign up. That's it for today's episode. Until next time, here's looking towards the future.